Hey, good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you. Good morning. <laughs> oh, thanks. So several people I noticed said it's good to see you too. So thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I've been mentioning I've been trying to have as many conversations as I can with people around the city uh, to find out what they're thinking about faith and community and purpose and things like that. And as I've been doing that, I, I have to report that I've been noticing a pretty high level of skepticism as I talk to people. And the skepticism I'm finding isn't necessarily about the things you might think people would be skeptical about. So it's not that people aren't skeptical about Jesus or um, his teaching or maybe even bigger ideas like his, uh, the idea that he's the son of God and stuff like that. People are skeptical of that. But the main skepticism that I've been bumping up against as I've been having conversations around the neighborhoods is skepticism over the motives of the church or churches. So several times as I've been talking with people, they've said things to me like this. Churches just want to build themselves up. They want to use me to help build up their organization so they can grow and they can be bigger and they can be awesome in their own eyes. Maybe they don't put it that little bit there at the end, but basically they want to use me to do their thing. And the people I'm talking to are basically saying, that doesn't feel good, <laughs> which makes sense to me. You know, a few months ago, um, for, I'm not sure how I got turned on to this, but I started watching on Netflix old episodes of Friday Night Lights. Any fans here? Yeah. Wow, some, I got some fist pumps out there. So I started watching it, and Friday Night, <laughs> Friday Night Lights, the main character is this guy named Coach Taylor, Eric Taylor. You guys ever heard of him? This is Coach Taylor right here. Um, and as you might imagine, he's a football coach. It's called Friday Night Lights, which refers to football on Friday nights in high school. And so there are lots of themes throughout this series about coaching, mentorship, um, bringing people along. And one of the things I like about Coach Taylor is throughout the series, you can see that he definitely cares about winning. He has in mind things that he wants to do. He wants to see his program develop into a championship program. But at the same time, you also see that he cares very much about the young men who are on his team. So one night, I'm sitting in bed. I think Becca fell asleep on the iPad. I'm watching Netflix because I can't sleep. And I'm watching Friday Night Lights. And this scene comes up where one of his players had gotten into some big trouble. All right? I hope this isn't a spoiler alert because the show's been off the air for a while. But uh, one of his players has started taking steroids. And it comes out, the coach finds out about it. Now, this is a big, big deal, especially for his program. If this comes out, it could be disastrous. And you can tell his inclination is just to cut this young man off. And so you made a mistake to distance himself from him for the good of his own career, his own program. But what he does instead is make choices to get behind the young man, to help him, to give him a second chance. And something about that, watching that, seeing him put an individual, someone he cared about, to take a risk for him, to stand behind him, even when he made a terrible mistake, even when he disappointed him, just struck a chord with me. It was very emotional. I'm in 
sitting in the bed. I'm crying. I'm watching this TV show that's about football, and I'm crying. Like, what's going on here? But I think it speaks to something about the order of things as they're supposed to be in our lives. I really do think that as important as it is for our church to have a sense of mission and purpose, to be trying to accomplish things, even to want to grow so that we can make a bigger impact on the city of Philadelphia and around the world, as important as that is, I don't think it's more important than people where it would be okay for us to use people and relationships to get somewhere. And it seems to me, and it's important to me, that as a church and as a culture, in our community, we're focused on coming alongside of people wherever they are in life, helping them discover who they are, what God has made them to do, and supporting them in that, whether or not they end up in our church or not. So you might notice that if you're new in our church and you sign up to get coffee with me, by the way, if you're new, I don't know if you know you could do this, you can just email the church and you can, we can get coffee on me. Oh, really, on the church. The church will buy you coffee. We can sit down, get to know you. You might notice, spoiler alert, that what I'm going to ask you is questions that help me understand who you are, what you're trying to do in life, and how we and I might be able to help. That's the focus. This series is called 40 Days of Destiny. And the subtopic is, who are you? What are you trying to do? And how can we help? It's not that you are the center of the universe, because you're not, and neither am I. But who you are is important, and part of our mission is to come alongside people, help them discover those things, and do it. And when I saw Coach Taylor do this, to put the, his whole program, his whole career really at risk to help one person, it resonated because it's part of who we're trying to be. It's part of what we're trying to do. And the reason we're trying to do this is because We think this is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus was. That Jesus guided people on their journeys, in these journeys of self-discovery, while inviting them at the same time into a bigger story. But he didn't use people. He came alongside them. He challenged them. He pushed them. Not everyone went with him. He wasn't actually able to help everyone. But he never tried to use anybody. So last week we looked at who are you? What are you trying to do? You know, those are big questions. I'm sure we didn't figure it all out in one week, but we got started. And this week we're going to look at this idea of we all need a guide. You need a guide. I need a guide. And what I'm going to suggest and what I'm actually going to argue is that Jesus is that trustworthy guide. What we're doing in this series, we're watching Jesus interact with one person in particular, Simon Peter, often referred to just as Peter. And we're watching him guide him through a life of discovery and growth, maturity, to help him become who he was made to be and do what he was made to do. So this week, we're going to watch Jesus in another episode in Peter's life, if you will, help him along that way. You want to see that? Oh, yeah. All right. Front row is into it. So we're going to watch that. We're going to read the story, and we're going to break it down a little bit. All right? This is Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Verse 27 says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, what we're going to do is look in this passage at two musts, two musts, M-U-S-T, musts, and see what we can learn about those things that will encourage us that not only is Jesus a good guide, but if we can latch on to that, what it means for our lives, all right? So the first must is this. We must understand Jesus as the king on a cross. Now, that's a pretty weird way to say things. I'll just say it right now. King on a cross seems kind of odd. So I'm going to break that down a little bit. We're going to talk about that. But you'll notice the first main focus of this passage is the identity of Jesus. So Jesus asked his followers, who are you? Or no, it says, who do you say I am? That's what Jesus says. Uh, and then they give him an assortment of answers. They say prophets, they say teacher, you know, all these types of things. And really, I don't think that this has really changed very much over the last 2,000 years. You can ask people on the street who's Jesus, and you will get a litany of answers, all kinds of answers, up and down the spectrum of who Jesus is. In fact, I, I did a little searching on this to sort of find interesting quotes about what people think about Jesus, and I just want to read a few of you some of these quotes. So, for example, one person said this, a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. That's how Mahatma Gandhi um, described Jesus Christ. Someone else said, As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. The person who said that was Albert Einstein, famous physicist and atheist. Um, here's another one. Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. That was said by Martin Luther King Jr. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. That was said by Mikhail Gorbachev. And here's one of my favorite. Jesus is magic. That was said by Sarah Silverman, famous comedian. So there's all these ideas about who Jesus is, and people think all kinds of different things. But for Jesus, it wasn't enough for his followers to just be able to talk about what other people thought. He was more concerned with what they thought, because what other people think and what people at large think, you can keep that as an idea sort of at arm's length, but Jesus wasn't interested in that. So he said, who do you say I am? He wanted it to be personal. He wanted people to really think about it. He didn't want people to just sort of like 
float along. He wanted them to actually think, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? Because when things hit close to home, it affects us personally. And what Jesus finds is that Peter has a very particular view of who Jesus is. Peter says, you're the Messiah. Now, Messiah is an interesting term. We don't use it that much. We use it, people know that it refers to Jesus. But what that is, you know, there's this great choral work called the Messiah. You know, they sing around Christmas time and stuff like that. But what is the Messiah? Messiah just means the anointed one. And in context, it means a king. But not just any king. It was the king that was prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures that would come and put everything right. That when he was on the throne, every tear would be wiped dry. Uh, there would be no more war. People would take their swords. They'd bang them into plowshares so they could use them to harvest wheat and things like that. But he was the guy or the gal, but I think they were expecting a guy, let's be honest, who would sit on the throne and rule everything and put everything right. And Jesus, when he says this, when Peter says this, he agrees. In fact, I think it's really interesting. If you read Matthew, who wrote another story of the life of Jesus, he tells this story, and Jesus is even more sort of effervescent about this discovery that Peter makes. He says, blessed are you because this was revealed to you by God and not by men. So I think in the beginning, I told you, we're going to see some real highs in, lives, in the life of Peter. This is one of those highs, highs. This is where he says, you're the Messiah. And it's like Jesus gives him a high five and says, yes. You got it. And you know what? You didn't just figure this out on yourself, but the Spirit of God spoke to you and revealed this to you. This is like Peter, like flying high right here. But what we find out is that while Peter understands Jesus' title, and I think he has some sense of what his role is of putting everything right, he also thinks he knows how Jesus should do it or how it's going to happen. He knows what Jesus should be like, what he should do, how he should do it. And he has an idea of Jesus that he's very comfortable with. And it's the only Jesus he's really willing to accept at this point. He actually reminds me of one of my favorite comedic characters from the movies, a brilliant man by the name of Cal Naughton Jr. from Talladega Nights, <laughs> who at one point is sitting around with his buddies, who are all NASCAR drivers, and their wives and friends and stuff like that, and they're praying to bless the food. And they get in this fight over how they should pray. And Carl, or Cal, sorry, explains the Jesus that he wants to pray to. And he says this, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, hey, I'm formal, but I like to party. I like my Jesus to party. And then he also says, I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm, I'm in the front row. I like to picture Jesus like a figure skater. And he wears a white outfit and he does interpretive ice dances of my life's journey. <laughs> now, at least I think these pictures of Jesus are a little bit ridiculous. And they're ridiculous to the point where they're humorous. At least I think so. And when it's obvious, when the way we picture Jesus is obvious and off, we think it's funny, it's comedy. But when it's more subtle, we call it reality. And this is what we all do. 
You know, there are rough edges to Jesus that we like to round off. I mean, let's just be honest. There are things about him that we want to trumpet, and we're like, yes, this is my Jesus. This is what I like. This is what I want to follow. He makes me so comfortable (laughs) to think of him this way. But a wise person once said that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. He's not interested in our agendas or fitting our preconceptions about who he is or making himself work for us. You know, he does have a mission, and he won't let it be shaped by us. He wants it to shape us. And Peter learns this in a very dramatic way. So Peter has this high moment. He's like, you're the Messiah. And and Jesus is like, yes, high five. God showed you that, not man. And then the next thing you see is Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. So when Jesus gets out of the box that Peter has him in just a little bit, Peter gets angry. For Peter, Jesus the king doesn't mean Jesus the crucified. For Peter, Jesus the king means Peter the prime minister, Peter the secretary of defense, Peter the rich, powerful, successful, right-hand man of Jesus. Peter expects, as they're on their way into Jerusalem, he expects a coronation, not a crucifixion. And Jesus will have none of it. And he makes this point in a severe and clear way by saying this, get behind me, Satan. Jesus, call someone Satan. Jesus, who has had, if you read the whole story, personal experience with Satan, calls Peter out as Satan. So if Peter just had the highest of highs, he's now hitting the lowest of lows. Although it will get lower. We'll see that later. But to this point in his life, this is as low as it gets. His guru, his hero, his leader has just called him, not just compared him, but called him Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So he went from, well, this wasn't revealed to you by humans, but God, to you don't have in mind the things of God, but only human things. All probably in the span of about 30 minutes. And what Jesus understands here that Peter misses he misses because he's already decided in his own mind who Jesus is and what he has to be, is that Jesus has to die. Because that's going to be the beginning of the renewal of the whole world. It's not an option. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. It's not an option. It's a must Jesus must be the king on the cross. Why? Well, that's a big question. And I think the answer to the question, why does Jesus have to die on the cross, is so big, it's it's more like a diamond. There's all kinds of facets. There's lots of true things about why Jesus had to die. So by saying this is one reason, it's one reason, it's a beautiful one, but you put them all together, it gets even more beautiful. 
But one reason is this. Jesus died so that we could know what authentic love is. We're focused on this one because it's going to affect Peter in a moment. There's this famous theologian from back in the day that may not be famous to you, and that's fine. His name was Bernard of Clairvaux. And he wrote about authentic love and what it is. And he saw it in four different stages. The first stage is this. He said, one begins by loving oneself for one's own sake. He says, this isn't the highest degree of love, but it's a necessary starting point. You love yourself for your own sake. Stage two, he says, is loving another for one's own sake. So you see the benefits of a relationship with someone else, with another person, and you love that person for what that person does for you. And this type of love you might consider somewhat fake love because it's conditional and it's not that vulnerable, right? It's basically the pursuit of another person to meet your own ends, right? It's kind of what people are afraid of when they think about getting involved in churches, that churches love them to meet their own ends, to get somewhere, right? And of course, the possibility there is if you're not helping them get somewhere, they might stop loving you. And so that's why stage two is not authentic love. It's just another stage towards it. Stage three is this, that you discover the intrinsic worthiness in another person apart from what he or she can do for you. And you love them just because they're amazing. They're beautiful. They have worth on their own apart from you. And whether or not they do anything for you, you're willing to love them unconditionally and with a radical vulnerability. You open yourself up to them because they blow your mind. They're amazing. And this is what he calls authentic love. Now we're getting authentic love. Now Bernard says the problem with this is he's not sure that humans can actually love like this. (laughs) And he says that uh, there's always some bit of fakeness, if you will, in our love. Some bit where we're just trying to use the object of our love. And this, I think, is what Peter misses about Jesus in the cross. Peter is expecting, as much as he really likes Jesus, to use him. And he doesn't understand yet who Jesus really is or what authentic love really is. And what we must or what we have to understand about authentic love is that it kind of takes someone to get the ball rolling for us because we all tend to be very self-centered. As much as we don't want to be, I'm not down on people, but it's just a part of who we are. So to get the ball rolling, we need someone who doesn't need us at all, who sees no use in using us to love us unconditionally and with radical vulnerability, to show us what it means, to show us what it looks like. Being loved like this would assure us of our own value in a way that nothing else could and in a way that then might possibly free us to love without an agenda, to love unconditionally, to love and be vulnerable. And the only person in this story who can do that is Jesus. If you pull out from this one story, you consider who Jesus is. Where Peter is pointing when he says, you're the Messiah, 
is pointing this idea of Jesus being the Son of God, being something bigger, being someone transcendent, being part of the Godhead. This idea in, in Christian theology of the Trinity, that God has, has existed for all time as one person in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you grasp this, although it's hard to grasp, but when you take it in, Jesus as a Son of God in community with the Trinity needs no one or nothing. It's a perfect community of love and ultimate vulnerability of being known and knowing. So this is where Jesus is. This is where he exists. He doesn't need anything from humanity. But he leaves that setup out of love in a display of authentic love to take action to bring renewal to the whole world. And that's what the cross is. So getting nothing that he doesn't already have out of the deal, but out of love, seeing the intrinsic value in you, in me, in humanity, desiring for the renewal of the whole world. In doing so, he demonstrated completely authentic and can you get more vulnerable than lying naked on a cross? And so he demonstrated completely authentic love. And Bernard, Bernard had another stage, a fourth stage. And he said this, Finally, it may happen when one begins to love oneself in the awareness that one's own being is of importance to God. And because you understand that you're loved, you then love yourself in a way that frees you to love others authentically. This is why Jesus must be a king on a cross. Because this is what he wants to show the world so that it can set something off in us. So we can know our own intrinsic value. The God who needs nothing comes and sacrifices himself for us because we're worth it. And if we can internalize that and experience that, then we can offer ourselves to other people and love them authentically, not just to use them to build something in us or in the world. That's why this is the first must. Jesus so strong says, must suffer, must die and rise again. This is what I have to do, Peter. This is what you need to understand. This is why right now I'm like, get behind me, Satan, because you're standing in the way of everything I've come to do. And the chain reaction I want to set off in humanity. And this is the first must. We must understand him as the king on the cross. The second is this. To follow Jesus, we must go to the cross as well. Verse 34 says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What does going to cross mean? I'm going to give you three quick things. First, it means a new identity. This is a big theme for our, our whole series. We talked about it last week. By the way, it's not too late. We still have these participant guides they're out in the lobby underneath the posters and by the chalkboard and stuff like that where you can pair up with two or three other people in your life and do this together. It's not too late. You can jump in. It's worth it. 
But identity is a big theme in this series. And we see it in this passage because when Mark writes it, he uses the word life. He says you have to lose your life to find it. And the word life uh, is the Greek word psyche. It means identity. It means personality. It means selfhood. It means who you are. That's what Mark is indicating Jesus is saying we have to lose to find. And that doesn't make a lot of sense at first glance. If you lose something to find it, it's a paradox. But it does if you think about it in these terms. In verse 36, Jesus says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And I think this is what we normally do. So we live in a particularly individualistic society. And we often base our identity on things like our career, how much money we can make. Maybe we base it on how many kids we can have or how they love us or family in some sense, relationships. What we can build for ourselves, what we can gain to tell us that we're all right, that we're worthwhile, that we have meaning, that our existence is not futile. That's what we normally do. But Jesus encourages his followers to pursue their sense of self in a different place. And notice this, it's not just in God. Like, we say, oh, you should find your identity in God. Yes, that'd be, that's great, but that's kind of abstract, isn't it? How do I do that? <laughs> but Jesus says, in God and in the gospel. Did you notice that? That's important because the gospel isn't an idea or a theory or a philosophy. The gospel is actually something that's happened. Gospel means good news. It points to an event, not an idea. And the event that it points to is Jesus' death on a cross and his resurrection. That's the event that's heralded. That's the event that happens that makes a difference. That's what the gospel is. And Jesus saying, find your identity, not just in God in some abstract way, but in this event, this display of authentic love, meant, among many other things, to communicate to you that you have value to God. I like the way, um, he's a Christian philosopher, many of you know him because he wrote famous books about lions and witches and wardrobe and stuff like that which were made into one good movie and some really bad ones. Um, his name, I'm sorry, I'm a hater. Uh, his name is C.S. Lewis, and he wrote this. There's a little bit of a paragraph here, but I want to read it because I think he, he's getting at something about identity here that can help us. He says, The more that we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let, and let him, he's speaking of God, take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, I use that because he uses, he uses the quotes too, little Christs, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men and women that you and I were intended to be. Big theme in our series. In that sense, our real selves are waiting for us in him. It's no good trying to be myself without him. 
The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events that I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural men and women, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors who've been. How gloriously different are the saints. This idea of finding your identity in what God has done. Letting that shape you. Finding who you were created to be. Not trying to create it yourself. Which goes against all our natural inclinations. So new identity, seconds, a new agenda. So Peter starts this passage with a clear end in mind. They're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be coronated king. Peter's going to get a nice role in that government with a good wage and a pension, and he's going to have lots of power, and he's ready for it. Jesus, however, makes it very clear that he came with a purpose that will not be shaped by Peter's agenda. He will be a king on a cross. He will be. And Peter may follow him, but only if he'll embrace the mission of Jesus that Jesus models. And we see a a picture that coming up, we can't see the whole thing, but the night before Jesus is crucified, he knew what was coming. And so he has this prayer interaction with his Father in heaven that we get a little inside peek to. He says, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And this is the way of the king on the cross and the way of those who would follow him. It is death to our own agendas. It's not God using us to his end. It's us choosing to follow his way. Do you see the difference? It's a choice we make in freedom, fully understanding what's being asked of us the best that we can. It's not God leading us on, pretending this is about us, flipping it to what he's trying to accomplish in the end. Do you see the difference? It's knowing what we're buying. It's, it's a pick up your cross and follow me. Understanding what that means. And the third thing it is, it's also a new hope. Jesus starts in weakness, but ends in power. And Jesus demonstrated authentic love through his death on a cross. But that's not all. In verse 1, it says, And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Some people mistake this verse. They think it's about maybe saying that Jesus would return before everyone in that who was hearing that uh, had passed. But I think that misses the point. And also, it's like this story is circulating when some of these people have already died, but yet people grab onto it. I think what he's saying is that the power that's going to be released in his resurrection after the death that he suffers 
is going to be released in the lives of the people, and some of them are standing right there. The renewal that's promised in the Hebrew Scriptures of all things is going to start at the gospel moment of the death and the resurrection, and that the here and now is going to be impacted, not just the sometime, someday. Those who would understand him as a king on the cross, who could embrace a new identity in Jesus, could also adopt his agenda and experience the same power that raised Jesus from the dead in their own lives, in their own communities, right now. And their lives would not become perfect or indestructible. They would still share in the suffering of living in a broken world, but they would begin to experience the renewal of the ages as they find their true purpose in life, in the here and the now, and begin to live it out. That's what we're hoping happens in this series. You know, you get that packet, it's got some cool exercises in there. I wrote them, so I think they're good. But exercises only take you so far. The hope and the prayer, in the context of the community that you're building, is that the presence of God would be taking advantage of those steps that you're making to experience him, to try new things, to risk things. And that's what makes the difference. That's what's released through a king on a cross. And this is what we hope for when we say in our vision as a church to seeking to make our great city even better. And the hope for our lives and for Philadelphia is that power working its way through people who understand the king on the cross and their need to follow him there. Let's pray. Jesus, sometimes I would just rather be super comfortable with you and have you be just like I picture you right now. I think we all agree with that. But we say this morning that however we picture you, as great as it is and as good as it is, we just have to say we're getting some things wrong. We haven't figured you all out. And praise God for that because that's the adventure of life. Thank you. Thank you that we can't get everything about you. We can't wrap our minds around everything. And today and tomorrow and the next day and next year, there'll be new things to discover about you and what it means to follow you and who you're calling us to be and what that means and what it takes and the opportunities before us because of that. I just pray that that perspective that there's so much to learn, to see, to understand that we don't have it all figured out, would just be present in us. And as we take steps to follow you, God, can we find your real presence? That's what we need. That's our hope. That's what keeps us going. So now, in this moment, would you be real to us? In our exercises, as we pray, as we try to live in new ways, we bump into you. And may we discover more and more what it means that you are the Christ. But not think because we know you're the Christ that we've figured it out. 
In Jesus' name, amen.